The moment sounded festive, and it certainly was, but as nearly 80 pro-life physicians gathered in a small ballroom across the street from the White House, the gravity of the moment was felt by everyone. It was November 30th, 2021, and these medical professionals were gathered to witness a significant challenge to Roe v. Wade on the next day. You know, we all see how important this time is, and we just decided we need to be here together. Roe's been essentially unchallenged, and it's outdated. If abortion is so necessary, if abortion is so essential, why do over 85% of obstetrician gynecologists refuse to do abortions? I'm a member of the United States Congress, but also a practicing urologist. I came here to show congressional support to my fellow physicians, the OBGYNs, and their calls. The next morning, we gathered in front of the Supreme Court to witness the oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson, a case with the potential to change the legal landscape around abortion. I'm Dr. Christina Francis, and this is the Post Row Review, a limited series podcast from the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, also known as APLOG. When the tragic Roe v. Wade decision was issued by the Supreme Court in 1973, pregnancies were black boxes. Ultrasound technology was brand new and not widely used, only showing grainy images on the screen. But now, nearly 50 years later, prenatal science has made incredible leaps forward. And this is why we stood in front of the Supreme Court for hours on a cold winter day as the Dobbs case was heard. Medical science favors the pro-life viewpoint. So in this episode, we will talk about the long march for life from the Roe v. Wade decision until that cold morning during the Dobbs hearing. Even if you don't consider yourself pro-life, I invite you to stick around and listen. You may be surprised at what you hear from medical professionals who have wrestled with this issue throughout their careers. It was great to be training in medicine in the late 70s and 80s because that's when ultrasound came in. And ultrasound has changed everything. Because now not only can we see the baby's heartbeat two weeks after the positive pregnancy test, so six weeks pregnant, not only can we see the baby at that point and show the mom, but the mom can actually start bonding. And that's why you get, you know, texting the first pictures around. Everybody knows, hey, there's my child. That's APLOG's executive director, Dr. Donna Harrison. She's been at the forefront of the abortion discussion from the start. As an OBGYN physician, she has a broader social and evidence-based view of this issue than one might expect. In the past, people thought, well, we're, we're really just removing blobs of tissue. But I'm a blob of tissue, as are all human beings, blobs of tissue. What we're removing is a human being who has a separate circulatory system and a separate heartbeat, separate arms and legs. You know, it makes it clear that that and elective abortion is actually ending the life of another human being. The issue here is 
do we kill human beings to solve a social problem? Granted, a pregnancy that isn't planned, that comes at a, a difficult timing, that's a social problem. I'm not denying that it isn't. But I think we have a better way of solving those problems than to say, oh, well, just kill the baby. What? How about let's make it better for women to be pregnant and working? That would be a great suggestion. And how about let's make childcare available? That would be a great suggestion. You know, we have ways of solving this problem that don't require that we kill each other. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, has historically been the major medical organization representing OBGYNs in the U.S. In the early 70s, they began to formally pursue a pro-abortion philosophy, and APLOG was formed in response to this move, as this represented a major departure from their founding policies and from the viewpoint of most of their members. ACOG submitted what's called an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the Roe v. Wade case, indicating their support for abortion through this official legal document. But they weren't the only group submitting their professional opinion to the Supreme Court. When the pro-life leadership of ACOG realized that ACOG was becoming very pro-abortion, they decided they would submit their own amicus brief. So if you look back in the legal dockets of Roe versus Wade, what you'll find is that ACOG submitted a very pro-abortion amicus brief. And then there was another brief submitted by certain obstetricians and gynecologists, and that was APLOG. So after that, after submitting that brief, that's when we incorporated. And we have submitted amicus briefs in every single major Supreme Court decision since Roe versus Wade. That long history of medical advocacy includes 2021's oral arguments before the Supreme Court in the Dobbs v. Jackson case. Where the justices will finally be given an opportunity to reconsider Roe v. Wade. APLOG not only submitted an amicus brief to the court for this case, we also showed up with nearly 80 medical professionals to stand before the court that day to represent our medical views and expertise. While some in the media called it a publicity stunt because we were there in our white coats, actually, we were all board-certified medical professionals there to represent the science behind the pro-life movement to the public and to the press. APLUG is the largest non-sectarian pro-life organization in the world. We serve as a pro-life professional second opinion to demonstrate very clearly that there is a disagreement among OB-GYNs about this issue. And not all OB-GYNs are for elective abortion throughout nine months of pregnancy. In fact, most OB-GYNs are not for abortion in that they may not go out and protest but they vote with their scalpel and they don't do abortions. So we can testify and demonstrate that there is real harm being done to women from abortion. And we see it, there are patients. We also are able to encourage our colleagues around the world who look to APLOG for practice bulletins, for committee opinions, for help as they launch their resistance to forcing doctors to kill. So we are in a unique place in the pro-life movement, and we want to continue to serve our colleagues around the world by giving them the best evidence-based information that exists. 
My name is Jeannie Onan Bramer, and I am a board-certified OBGYN obstetrician gynecologist. I trained at the University of Kentucky for medical school and residency, and then I have practiced there. I've practiced in Fairbanks, Alaska, and I'm currently in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, one of the things that I've loved about AppBlog is just the amount of information they've given me to help support the arguments, to understand kind of some of the real complications that are associated with abortions. You know, when the general medical societies discount all of that and say that they're completely safe, and inherently you know that that's not true, you also know it anecdotally through taking care of patients, it's very refreshing to actually find some of the science that goes behind that to back up your opinions and to back up your viewpoints. And to be able to share that with patients, with other medical uh, professionals, just to feel like you're doing more than just giving your opinion. You know, we're always taught to practice evidence-based medicine. And in order to do that, you have to have the science to back up what your position is. And that's what I feel like APLOG is doing. Over the years, APLOG has expanded to include physicians, scientists, and allied medical professionals from multiple specialties. But our female members experience this issue as both physicians and patients. And that means holding a pro-life position is not theoretical, but very personal and practical. Dr. Kathy Altman's story is a good example of how perspectives can shift as a medical professional gains life experience. For me, abortion and the right to abortion was sort of a normal thing. And so there wasn't a time when I was practicing or in training when there was no row. So I automatically thought it was fine. What probably affected me the most was that right before entering medical school, I got pregnant and decided that I needed to get an abortion because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to be a doctor if I didn't abort the baby. At that point, it was just one and done. It wasn't until I got to my residency program, which was OBGYN, that I, I became pretty adamant about abortion rights. And although in my residency program, you could opt out of abortion training, and some of my colleagues did. That was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to learn abortions. And not only did I learn the first trimester DNC was suction abortions, now called aspiration abortions, but I also did a special preceptorship with one of the attendings who did second trimester DNE abortions. I was so gung ho on abortion that instead of moonlighting in an emergency room to make extra money during my residency program, I chose to moonlight in an abortion clinic. And you can do that after you've gotten your medical license after the first year. So you're not finished training, but you do have a medical license. So I got my license and got a job at an abortion clinic. I continued to do abortions all the way through my pregnancy, and I worked just about till term. And I didn't see any sort of problem with that. My baby was wanted, theirs wasn't. So I felt perfectly comfortable doing abortions while I was nine months pregnant. After my delivery, however, something must have happened 
because the first time I went back to the clinic, which was at about six weeks, I saw three patients that really dramatically changed my mind. The first patient I found out I had done three previous abortions on when I looked at her notes and I hadn't been doing abortions that long. So I went to the clinic administrator and I said, I don't want to do this abortion. She's just using abortion as birth control. I've done three on her before. And they said, well, that's, that's not up to you. That's her right. You need to do the abortion. And I looked at him and I said, yeah, but I'm the one having to do the killing. The second patient came in with her friend, and after the abortion, the friend said, do you want to see the tissue? And the patient said, no, I just want to kill it. And I thought, what did that baby ever do to you? The third patient was the mother of four, and she and her husband decided they just couldn't afford another baby. And she cried throughout her whole time at the clinic. And after that, I could not do abortions. The fact that the baby was unwanted was not enough justification for me to be able to kill it. Dr. Altman's life and career were changed because she saw the impact that abortion had on both her patients and herself. Patients may expect that their doctors should have no personal opinions that affect their practice of medicine, but traditionally, doctors took the Hippocratic Oath to first do no harm. Medical practice is grounded in an ethical viewpoint. Because of this, APLOG supports the conscience rights of medical professionals in multiple areas. To this end, we have submitted amicus briefs in every major conscience case at the Supreme Court in the last 40 years. We've also been active in testifying at the state level. We've testified on bills in Congress. We have been very active in defending physicians' ability to practice according to the Hippocratic Oath. So this is something that most uh, most people may not know, and that is when abortion came around and became the law of the land, doctors less and less often took the Hippocratic Oath. Why? Because the Hippocratic Oath explicitly says, I will not perform an abortion. And it also explicitly says, I will not perform euthanasia. The Hippocratic Oath separates doctors from those who kill. So the healing profession was never meant to kill human beings. And so we advocate for the Hippocratic Oath and for doctors to be able to practice according to the Hippocratic Oath in training and in their practice. It's really important that physicians do have a conscience because without a conscience, we, we have a lot of temptations and the best physicians have a sense of ethics and do things for the benefit of their patient. They put their patient first. And if you start eroding that, then you're going to deserve what you get. And that is a much more mercenary medical system. Though our position is sometimes misrepresented in the media, the fact is that APLOG's members are concerned for both patients before us, the woman and her child. And we recognize that there are significant pressures that women face with unplanned pregnancies. Dr. Antherica Lane is a practicing OBGYN in Ohio who sees these issues in her office every day. 
and she offers a thoughtful and broad perspective on a full range of reasons why abortion seems like a good solution to some patients. In my experience, I found that the women who are expressing a desire for abortion are not expressing this overwhelming need to practice their reproductive right to privacy, but in fact, they are making decisions based on those social determinants of health. And when you look at sources, I've seen Black women are having abortions anywhere from four to five times that of the white community. That just blew me away. Like I just thought four to five times. So if someone were to ask me, what does the pro-life community really need to understand when it comes to considering abortion in communities of color. I just have a few suggestions. Number one, until we develop a comprehensive abortion elimination or pro-life strategy that addresses systemic racism and social determinants of health, when it comes to people of color, disadvantaged communities, low-income populations, really our efforts will be incomplete or less effective. Abortion will forever be viewed not as a reproductive right, but as a way out of a potentially difficult and challenging situation. We must begin to address these issues of systemic racism, social determinants of health, and really understand that connection, that relationship to why women are making the decision for abortion. Next, it's important to understand that people of color are not monolithic. Our strategies must be multifaceted. For example, not all Black people are going to agree with what I'm saying today. In the Black community alone, there are differences in socioeconomic status, education, access to care, religious beliefs, etc. And all these differences are going to drive a person's decision to choose abortion over life or choose life over abortion. And so my hope is that in working with APLOG and working with the pro-life movement, that I can have some impact on that so that Black children who are conceived will have the opportunity to realize their full potential. And the only way that can happen is if they are able to survive through birth. Advocacy, public policy, and representation are a few of the reasons that APLOG exists for medical professionals. But at the top of the show, I said science favors the pro-life perspective. That claim actually merits more than one podcast episode. So we'll look at an overview of research in this episode and then do a deep dive in the next one. As Dr. Donna Harrison says, the last 50 years have seen incredible leaps in scientific understanding and research surrounding conception and pregnancy. There's all kinds of things that we can do now, understanding that we've got two patients and we can treat them. There's great examples of fixing defects laparoscopically, of doing surgeries that that close defects in the baby's abdomen. So technology and science has moved a long way since 1973 despite what one of the Supreme Court justices said during the Dobbs oral arguments, that nothing has changed since 73. A lot has changed since 73, especially in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. And by the way, the Supreme Court invented the whole trimester system. 
We didn't talk about trimesters in obstetrics and gynecology until the Supreme Court invented this. So out of whole cloth, they created a medical framework that didn't exist before. It's actually sad that Roe v. Wade was decided when it was, because there literally was a boom in scientific discovery and development and looking at this little person inside the womb that followed not very long after that. Now, almost 50 years later, science has made huge leaps, whether we're talking about ultrasound, whether they're talking about understanding neural development and development of fetal pain, all of these various things, science has not stood still, unlike the legal interpretation. That's Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. The Lozier Institute brings together physicians, sociologists, statisticians, and policy researchers to do both original and interpretive research on a wide range of life issues, and they are a valuable partner to APLOG. Basically, my job is to do scientific analysis, medical analysis, lots of research that's being published. So I spend a great deal of my day reading scientific papers doing analysis, and then trying to write summaries. And a lot of this relates to a lot of the work that APLOG's doing on various sorts of things, whether it's fetal pain, early development, heartbeat, maternal mortality, chemical abortion. So we're investigating a lot of the things that APLOG is very interested in. Over the last decade or two, there's been a greater focus on what is the scientific reality involved with human development. Now, the Eplog docs already know this from their actual experience, but a lot of scientists, a lot of other doctors, and certainly the general public really don't realize how much we know and how much we didn't know previously in terms of that elegant choreography of human development from that first single-celled embryo through the next nine months after that. And certainly the improvement in ultrasonography has aided this greatly as well, because instead of those sort of grainy black and white ultrasounds that people used to have, we now have 3D and even 4D ultrasounds. You can almost watch on TV the development of this little human being. So you can not just take a snapshot, you can actually get video feeds from inside the womb of how this little girl or this little boy is developing. And that's actually been a boom to scientific investigation as well, because you can start to detect behaviors that are occurring in the womb. So detecting the heartbeat at its earliest stage, this is done through what's called Doppler ultrasounds. It's basically the same principle that the Highway Patrol uses to clock you and how fast you're going. For Doppler ultrasounds, they're pinging ultrasonic waves and watching the reflection back. And so you can see movement. You can see the beating heart even as early as six weeks gestation. 
The abortion landscape shifted dramatically in July 2020 when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced that anyone seeking a medication abortion up to 10 weeks into a pregnancy would no longer have to pick up the medication in person or take it in a doctor's presence. That was a temporary move in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But in December 2021, it made that provision permanent which, as David Prentice points out, has huge ramifications for the women who take it on their own. In a post-Roe world, they're talking about the majority of abortions would be chemical abortions. The idea supposedly being, hey, I don't even have to see the doctor. I can just accomplish this in the privacy of my own home. And that totally ignores the evidence we already have of not just increased complications with chemical abortion versus surgical abortion, but the significant health risks to women. We're seeing that trajectory already so that there's been over the last few years over 40% increase in the numbers of chemical abortions over surgical abortions. But the scariest part that a number of the Charlotte Lozier scholars have found is that there's an over 500% increase in the number of emergency room visits for these women. This idea of, oh, you do this in the privacy of your home and you eliminate any contact with the physician significantly increases the risk to the health and the life of the mother. Complications like excessive bleeding, which you'll see even more if They've not seen a doctor and found out, oh, they have an ectopic pregnancy. Other sorts of problems in terms of not being able to accomplish the complete abortion. So they may have significant bleeding and think it's over, but it's not. And they end up still having to go in and get a surgical abortion. This push by Planned Parenthood, what we're looking at in a post-Roe world of all of this chemical abortion, really shows a distinct lack of regard for the health of women, let alone trying to destroy this unborn life. Dr. Jeannie Bramer says that the first thing she wants to know about a newly pregnant patient is where the baby is. Is it in the uterus or is it outside of it? A dangerous situation called an ectopic pregnancy. The best way to know whether this is the case is through an ultrasound. And even though ectopic pregnancies only occur in 2-3% to of pregnancies, it's too dangerous to assume the pregnancy's location without checking. This is one of the risks that women face when they take the abortion pill without an in-person visit with a physician. Now there's the risk of women trying to have a medical abortion at home that have an ectopic that can therefore rupture. And then, you know, that's one of the leading causes of maternal mortality is a ruptured ectopic. And so now we're giving women access to something that is going to increase their maternal mortality because these ectopics are going to go undiagnosed. Not to mention all the other complications, even if it is in the uterus, even if it is being treated correctly, you know, it's the right gestation and they took the medication correctly, then now they have to pass all the products at home. I actually just saw a patient yesterday who went through a medical abortion six months ago. And they just gave her the pills, gave her the instructions. Here, take the other ones, you know, at this time. She was 19 years old, had no idea what to expect. She thought she was going to have a heavy period. 
she was on the floor crying and the bleeding was getting so bad. She was lightheaded. She felt like she was going to pass out. She called. They told her to take more medicine. She finally went to the hospital. They kept her in the hospital for a couple days and she was traumatized. We're building a base of peer-reviewed research because we need to counter the lies of the abortion industry with facts. And women deserve to know the very real dangers associated with abortions. So, in our next episode of the Post-Row Review, we'll explore what medication abortions actually do. The Post-Row Review is a production of APLOG, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I'm Dr. Christina Francis. For more information, please visit aplog.org. That's A-A-P-L-O-G dot org.